This is the American Medical Association's COVID-19 Update Podcast. This is part of an ongoing series featuring critical insights from the physicians and healthcare professionals on the front lines of the pandemic. Hello, this is the American Medical Association's COVID-19 Up video and podcast. Today's topic, can you believe it? Back to school and what that's going to look like in the fall. I'm joined today for the third annual back to school episode <laughs> with Dr. Aaron Carroll, a distinguished professor of pediatrics and chief health officer at Indiana University in Indianapolis, Indiana. I'm Todd Unger, AMA's chief experience officer in Chicago. Dr. Carroll, welcome back. Well, thank you for having me. Uh, and we were talking just before this. It's hard to believe uh, this is the third time we've spoken about back to school. Are we, are we ever going to get out of this? I hope. Um, we just don't seem to be there yet. And unfortunately, we're still needing to deal with the ongoing pandemic and, and what it might mean as everybody comes back together for school. Well, uh, I don't know that I want to be in the shoes of uh, the parents and educators, administrators and students right now uh, that have been dealing with this for some time. Um, are they generally optimistic or just fatigued both at this point? I, I think both. Uh, I mean, certainly fatigued. Uh, nobody'd hoped that we'd still be doing this as for a third time. But I'd also say that you know things are unquestionably safer than they were uh, a couple of years ago. We had no vaccines. Uh, hospitalizations were rampant. We were crushing the healthcare system. Uh, significant number of deaths every day. ICUs were full. A lot of that has slowed down. Um, people are hospitalized, but sometimes also with COVID as opposed to because of COVID. Many, many, many more people are vaccinated. Deaths, while still higher than we'd like, are much lower than they used to be, and things are, are much better. So that that is good news. Uh, and as you mentioned, you know, we've had a rollout of vaccines for uh, many age groups, even as young as uh, six months old, which is a game changer, obviously, for a lot of families. Um, unfortunately, you know, what we've seen is that the uptake on these vaccines is way, way, way lower um, than we hoped it was uh, for all those age groups, including the five to 11 year olds. What, you know, with the hope of this kind of like maybe a little bit of return to normalcy, what is the disconnect uh, and how do physicians approach uh, these conversations with parents as we head back into the fall? Well, I, I do worry that our messaging and the way that we're talking about this is not working uh, in that uh, the fact that something- That, like that seems to be a theme of this entire yes, pandemic. Entire time. We've yeah. talked about it before, but the fact that only about 5% of parents have vaccinated their six-month to you know, five-year-olds and the fact that something like only 30% of six to 11-year-olds are completely vaccinated uh, really shows that the messages are not getting across. Parents are not feeling- uh, that this is something that needs to happen. Uh, pediatricians are generally usually, and family physicians are usually very good about convincing people that vaccinating uh, kids is important. Um, I'm not sure how well we're doing that. Uh, I'm not sure also that it's happening as fast as we like, because if people are waiting for their well care visit to get the vaccines, of course, that will take time. Uh, but you were right in that it was thought that this would be a game changer. It clearly hasn't been. Uh, given that parents are not rushing to get this done. A lot of them are uh, waiting to see what happens. And some of them are saying, you know, my kids have already had COVID and it wasn't such a big deal. Why should I bother? Uh, I also see a lot of news that compares this to flu and saying that it's much more dangerous than flu. 
I worry that that comparison doesn't really work because we have a tough time convincing people to get immunized against flu as well. So we got to get better at this. We have to get better at explaining why immunization is good for everyone, not just those who get immunized, that you know, achieving very high levels of immunity, even amongst uh, young patient populations, will help to slow the spread of the disease, period. What do you say to parents who say, hey, my kid had COVID and uh, didn't seem to be that bad? I, I talk about the fact that it probably isn't that risky for them comparatively, but they probably have loved ones for whom it is much more risky. Uh, there could be grandparents, that could be people who are ill or immunocompromised. It could just be even other you know, friends, because of course, if pe lots of people get it, bad outcomes before become more common. But a lot of pediatric immunization is about uh, protecting everyone against very minor diseases. Even when we started with varicella vaccinations. We had to talk about these same issues because a lot of people thought chickenpox is a nothing burger problem. Why should I worry about it? But some number of babies died every year of chickenpox and adults were at serious risk too, especially the elderly. And since we've started immunization, the number of babies who've died of varicella has dramatically decreased. And that's because sometimes we get vaccinated to protect others who can't protect themselves. That's the kind of message I think we need to lean on. Well, uh, that's a great message. And especially right now, because we're in the midst of a, a highly uh, contagious variant. Uh, we're still seeing, according to uh, Andrew Garcia, we talked with yesterday, 120,000 plus cases a day. Uh, you recently said you were concerned, but not worried about the BA5 strain. What, what's that mean? So I... I'm concerned by the fact that new variants keep popping up and that they cause subsequent waves or surges, depending upon how you look. But this feels more like a wave than a surge in the sense that it's not causing a dramatic increase in really bad outcomes, hospitalization, death, or, or you know, significant illness. Um, and because of that, you know, some protection from Omicron seems to be continuing uh, with respect to BA5. It's not as if it's a completely new variant, which is overwhelming everything and causing diseases if we had no immunity to begin with. So I, yeah, I'm concerned because clearly we're in the midst of a wave and we're seeing increases in cases, but most of those appear to be mild and people do seem to carry some protection from immunization and from previous infection. And so we're lucky in the sense that this is not an incredibly bad variant, which is, which is causing, again, a massive surge. Well, especially for those that have been vaccinated and boosted. Um, uh, I know as a, a formerly a parent that used to have kids in school, like uh, September was like the time when yeah. I caught my first cold of the year because who knows what uh, kids bring back from school. It must be very important also for those parents who haven't had, had that booster to get it. Yep. Anyone, I mean, at this point, anyone who has, is up for a booster should get one. And, you know, it, it does appear that immunity wanes and it, it wanes especially for getting an infection. Um, it appears that still there's pretty significant benefits with respect to preventing significant morbidity and mortality, but infections do occur and immunity does wane. So if you're, you know, if you had your booster in 2022 and you qualify, it's probably worth getting one. On the other hand, we know that more Omicron specific boosters are coming out in September. And given that we are, you know, a month away from that. It's not unreasonable, I think, for people that are, are waiting for those specific boosters to do so. 
You took care of the nation. It's time for the nation to take care of you. The AMA stood by America's physicians and patients during the pandemic, and we're not stopping there. We're fixing prior authorization, leading the charge on Medicare payment reform, supporting telehealth, fighting scope creep, and reducing physician burnout. It's time to rebuild, and the AMA is ready. To learn more about the AMA Recovery Plan for America's Physicians, go to ama-assn.org slash time to rebuild. Well, let's talk a little bit about testing. Uh, I, I've been to you know, some events uh, over the past few months, and despite how uh, the request to test before you, you, know, you depart, when you test on arrival, Inevitably, you know, in any kind of large group, somebody's going to say the next day I got COVID. So testing is still like so so important. And we think about kids going back and be around hundreds of other kids, um, kind of you know having that uh, process in place for for parents and students can be so important. You talked about your own family's bout with COVID, uh, which not unlike what I've heard from a lot of people is you test negative. You're starting to feel symptoms, uh, and then finally you test positive. Um, whereas a lot of people think I, I took a test and done with that, it said I was negative. Like, how do you talk about how to test with people? Well, it's important to understand as with all tests, and I mean, physicians understand this, you know, tests are not perfect and tests help us take pre-test probabilities and convert them into post-test probabilities. But if your pre-test probability is already really high, the test only adds so much. So in my instance, my wife and daughter had COVID. I was living in that house and I started to get a sore throat and not feel great. I was pretty sure I had COVID. And even though the antigen test was negative the first two days I checked, I was pretty sure I had COVID. And on day three, I tested positive. Antigen tests are probably a pretty good approximation of whether you're infectious, but not necessarily whether you're infected. Um, PCR tests might be better at that. I mean, they each have their value, but I do worry that too many people one, don't test when they're symptomatic at all. Um, but even if they do, they use antigen testing as a one-time check. And if it's negative, assume that, oh, this illness, even if it gets worse and my symptoms worsen, I don't have COVID, I'm safe to go out. We probably need to serially check with antigen tests, especially when pretest probability is reasonably high. That messaging is not getting out. I think people think that, again, testing is a one-time check and if I'm negative, I'm good. Uh, if you've been around a lot of other people or been in contact with someone that has COVID and you've got symptoms, there's a fairly good chance you've got COVID. And so this probably leads to my next question, which is, so obviously you test positive, you stay home. Yeah. How about in those cases where, you know, you probably have a good uh, reason to believe you might be uh, uh, positive, but haven't tested yet. When you, what's kind of the rule of thumb for telling people when they should stay home? I mean, I think if if you've got symptoms that would be considered pretty indicative of COVID these days, whether it be you know sore throat, which seems to be more common with Omicron, or really feeling lousy, or certainly fever, cough, I mean, I'd have a pretty low threshold for staying at home. Uh, just a, the occasional runny nose or congestion, I, you know, sometimes that's allergies, it's other things. I'd certainly test, and if you were just recently around a lot of people, again, your pretest probability should be pretty high that you could have been exposed to COVID. Um, but lots of us have small kids and they get, you know, colds and everything else. And if you, if, it, if it's a run of the, the mill cold and you're checking again and again, and it appears to not be COVID and they're getting better. Yeah. Probably safe. 
to go out into the world again. But uh, as much as possible, we really want to stay away from other people or at least be safe and mask up if we're, we're showing any kind of symptoms at all. So in addition to uh, uh, the COVID part of this, you've, you've also said that back to school is a good time to check in with kids and how they're doing. We know uh, there's just uh, terrible issues right now around mental health uh, and teens. Uh, how do you advise parents to have that discussion? So one of the things is, is I, I hate when I, I hate that people think it should be like a timed one-time check-in. I mean, ideally it should be part of an ongoing conversation, check in repeatedly. You should, you know, have many conversations with your kids about how they're doing, how they're feeling, how the world's going. Um, people get nervous about it when it's a big deal because it hasn't happened in a while or because they think this is the time to do it. As much as possible, make it routine. Don't make it a big deal. You know, checking on how your kids are doing, asking about their day, asking about how they're feeling. It, it's, it's something we should be doing all of the time so that it doesn't. Now, if you haven't done it in a while, it's a good, it's a good time to start. Um, you know, checking on anxiety, on fears, on concerns. Um, how are they feeling? How are they sleeping? How are they getting along with their friends? How are they doing? I mean, these are just all simple questions uh, that can be slipped into the day. And, you know, we all know how hard it is to sometimes get information out of kids. Uh, but if it's routine, they're going to be better about it. You can tell them we're going to have that conversation, but not that conversation. Right. Well, yeah, of um, course, there's always that, but that conversation <laughs> should also be all the time in routine. So yes, you know, we shouldn't we shouldn't make these like one time check ins. Um, they should become more of our regular, uh, you know, regular conversations. Well, uh, in addition to COVID, uh, obviously, uh, big concerns out there about mon monkeypox. Um, we haven't said or seen any kind of widespread cases in children as yet, um, or college campuses or any of that, but I have to imagine uh, there's the potential for that in the fall. Uh, how are you at IU and colleagues that you know from across the country approaching uh, this latest public health threat? Well, I mean, again, this is one of those where it's like, we're very concerned, but I don't think panicking yet. Um, first of all, it's a problem and we really are behind and I wish that we would get more on top of this and have more vaccination and everything else. But this is like much more likely to be diagnosed in the clinical setting um, than it is in the sort of outside world setting that, that COVID. I mean, COVID testing is everywhere. You know, you can go buy them in retail stores. This is much more likely to be picked up in, a, in an office where, where somebody has a concerning rash or um, something. So, so medical professionals are going to be much more involved. And then, of course, contact tracing and figuring out especially if it if there's sexually transmission involved, it's going to be, again, much more clinically handled. So we're activating our student health centers more. We're, we're recognizing that that's where testing is likely to occur, not off in some other area. Um, the contact tracing is likely going to be performed by a combination of, of the actual public health system and clinical settings, um, as opposed to trying to, to set up a whole different infrastructure that's going to do that. Uh, and that this is going to be much more clinic-focused uh, in, in finding people, getting post-exposure prophylaxis to those that need it, um, that, that, that our doctors and nurse practitioners and other providers are going to be much more on the front line of this in the detection and, uh, and then management than, uh, than perhaps was happening with COVID, where a lot of it was stay home and we'll handle it over there. Are you talking to your incoming students? We, we're, we're starting to, we, we already put stuff, information up on websites. We're clearly going to have to have 
some information set up, what you would want to look for, what you would want to do. And of course, we're most concerned about our congregate living settings where that's where close contact could happen that's not sexually uh, oriented. But this is, I, I don't think this is going to be as much of a problem as someone is infected, has no idea, and manages to spread it to large groups of people, also of whom don't know they have it. And we get we get significant sort of massive outbreaks um, that warrant large level quarantine. I think this is going to be more handled more retail, but it's a concern, and it's it's certainly something that that our college age students, um, especially if they're sexually active, are are just much more at risk for. So, uh, I, I I would absolutely agree that that a lot of colleges and universities are certainly focusing on this, uh, but it's a slightly different approach than what we what we had to do with COVID. Good. Better to be uh, armed with that information uh, and on guard. Uh, Dr. Carroll, uh, pleasure to talk to you again. Uh, we'll look forward to seeing you next year, regardless of hopefully what situation talking, we're in. <laughs> hopefully not talking about COVID, but we'll see. All right. That's it for today's COVID-19 update. We'll be back with another episode soon. In the meantime, for information on COVID-19, you can visit our resource center, ama-assn.org slash COVID-19. Thanks for joining us today. Please take care. Subscribe to other great AMA podcasts available wherever you listen to yours or visit ama-assn.org slash podcasts. Thank you for listening.